Okay, so I'm so curious about what you thought about people being, I don't know if offended is the right word. Can I just read to you really quick? I I did some searching online and I found like this kind of gaggle of Twitter feeds of people who were offended. This, by the way, listeners, is a conversation I had with Dr. Anne Carpenter, professor of theology at St. Mary's College. I contacted Dr. Carpenter a couple of months ago to talk about the 2018 Met Gala. For those of you who don't know the fashion world and award season like I happen to, I love award shows, by the way, (laughs) you might not know what I'm talking about. (laughs) Every year, the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City hosts a gala featuring various celebrities wearing the fashions of popular and -and up-and-coming designers. There's this infamous red carpet arrivals and big celebrity banquet, but most importantly... Most importantly, (laughs) there's an exhibit. Most people don't actually realize this, but the primary purpose of this night is to honor a theme. And that theme and all of the fashions which portrayed it will then be on display at the Met and sometimes other museums throughout New York City for a couple months after the fact. But back in 2018, the Met Gala decided to honor a theme where basically my love of red carpets and my love of my faith collided. (laughs) The theme for the year? Heavenly bodies and the Catholic imagination. And boy, oh boy, oh man, did people have a lot of opinions about it. So some of them say it's low-key disrespectful to the Catholic religion it's it's sacrilegious um you would never wear the hijab or character caricatures of muslim clothing um it's just another form of appropriating culture it's hypocritical i mean this is of course this is twitter at its finest so (laughs) just (laughs) reading outrage Um, the, a lot of outrage. It's it's tacky. Uh, Catholicism is not a theme, and it is not a fashion statement. Shame on you, Met Gala. <laughs> oh wow! So I am just I am just so curious about about what you think about the offense. And and to be sympathetic, um, it is strange seeing Rihanna in a very scantily dressed outfit with a pope's mitre hat right you know i mean that's that's weird bishops bishops i'm so sorry yeah so um so i'm just kind of curious what you what you would say what you think yeah yeah so what i really want to say is it is a couple things i i am so stinking excited about this episode you guys (laughs) pop culture meets theology and i love when we get to do theology this is the story of the met gala
All right. So like I said, I love award shows. I watch almost all of them every year. I've done this since I was little. Now the Met Gala is considered by many to be the end of the award show season. It's held every May. The final resting place, if you will, for all of the big celebrity names of the year. By the way, this never really made sense to me because the Tonys are held in June every year, but whatever, it's fine. (laughs) Basically, every year, I kind of just look at the Met Gala to see if anyone was wearing anything interesting, even things I might disagree with or just not quite understand, right? But this Met Gala was different. This one seemed for me in a weird way, right? The shapes, the colors, the symbols, it was all so familiar, but so unfamiliar. And so much of my confusion, I think, was echoed in the fact that I wasn't quite sure how I was supposed to respond to it. Am I supposed to be offended? I I don't know. (laughs) Is this cultural appropriation? I hate whenever I see all of those horrific costumes mocking the Catholic faith at Halloween, right? (laughs) But is this that? I genuinely didn't know. And honestly, the chatter in the Catholic interwebs didn't really help much either. The talk pretty much centered around this discussion of if it is okay okay, right? With people, good people, falling on both sides of the spectrum, of course, because that just seems to be where we're at today as Catholics. Are they appropriating our culture, our traditions as Catholics? Talk pretty much everywhere in Catholic digital spaces, but in other places too. Places you might not even expect. I'm a little confused. Why are you confused? Well, it's about religion, and it's about the Catholic Church. Catholic, right? Yes. And yet there's a lot of cleavage, there's a lot of leg, there's a lot, and nobody's offended by this all of a sudden? I think it's a take on people that are... I mean, Lena Waithe wearing the the pride flag was certainly... I get that, but some of them seem... I mean, I'm just wondering how come... You're Catholic. So are you. I'm not saying I'm offended. I'm amazed that people are not. So is Joy Bayer correct? (laughs) Was the Met Gala wrong? And if it was, then why did Cardinal Dolan enthusiastically promote it? Why did the Vatican lend so many incredible vestments, chasubles, and items from religious communities for the exhibit? And I was wrestling with these things and basically watching everything I could on the topic when I finally stumbled upon something. It was a video from a morning show over in Great Britain. You'll actually probably recognize the voice of Pierce Morgan here. But the show had two guests, both British Catholic journalists, one who loved the gala and one who hated it because of course, right? (laughs) But the discussion was actually really fascinating. I linked to it on my website, by the way. I'm going to play a little segment here because it gets at the heart, I think, of why I and so many others were confused by exactly how we should approach the Met Gala. Um, Look, it shows the Catholic Church in a good light, (laughs) in that if it had been an Islam theme, it would have caused outrage, probably would have provoked violence, right? The fact that it hasn't provoked violence or outrage other than from people like me, uh, on the Catholic <laughs> side, actually shows the Catholic Church in a good, tolerant light. Uh, I, I, did understand that I don't think it's necessarily even about Completely being good and tolerant. It's, it, to be a Christian is to welcome a certain amount of mickey-taking of yourself. Absolutely. It's part Jesus of the Christian the experience. The to be mocked is part of being Christian. You yes. cannot be Christian if no-one ever makes fun of you. Again, I think the problem here was that there was no answer given. 
there was no space created for the other side. Yeah. There was a lot of profane and no sacred. A lot of profane and no sacred. And that, I think, is at the heart of this whole controversy. Many of us see what happened as two separate spheres, right? So many Catholics were offended, I think, because the blending of the two, the sacred and the profane, pop culture meeting theology seemed unsightly, unholy, and frankly, to many, just wrong. But this idea was echoed in a conversation I had several months ago with Elizabeth Lev, professor of art history who lives in Rome. You probably remember Elizabeth from previous episodes. And she was using this exact phrase to describe what she believed was at the heart of the debate of the Met Gala. The Met Gala, so the Met Gala, the opening of the exhibition called Heavenly Bodies, provocatively titled, it it starts with an array of what people consider the beautiful people. No, so you have the movie stars and the pop stars all dressed up in the most expensive creations. They wait, you know, this is these are this is weeks and weeks and weeks of work for these people to parade down a red carpet and look the summit and apex of the beauty that they produce in this in this world of fashion. The ultimate example of the profane in the sense of something that is impermanent, constantly changing. So I decided that before we dive into the theme itself, the theme of heavenly bodies and the Catholic imagination, and dive into some of the fashions of the night, by the way, <laughs> we need to at least address the controversy. The sacred and the profane. And I knew just the person to help us understand. My name is Dr. Jennifer Frey, and I'm an assistant professor of philosophy at the University of South Carolina. Dr. Frey is a professor of philosophy at the University of South Carolina. She is currently teaching overseas various courses to American students. And she's teaching a course in particular titled The Happiness and the Good Life. Dr. Frey's primary area of academic interest is moral philosophy, specifically what is called the Aristotelian philosophical thought, which is why she is so interested in areas like virtue and happiness. And it was through her area of study and academic interest that in a roundabout sort of way, I found Jennifer. So I had this huge project. It was a $2 million grant from the John Templeton Foundation called Virtue, Happiness, and Meaning of Life. And we brought together philosophers and theologians and psychologists to study how transcendence is a central concept for thinking about those three categories, virtue, happiness, and meaning of life. And out of that huge project, that project went on for three years and involved like over 50 scholars. Um, Out of that project grew a podcast called Sacred and Profane Love. And for a while, that podcast was funded by money through the grant. So again, the John Templeton Foundation, but now the that grant has closed. I don't do that anymore. And I have a new benefactor, <laughs> and that is the Institute of Human Ecology at the Catholic University of America in Washington, D.C. Now, the idea of the sacred and the profane has been discussed and discussed and debated for centuries. Of course, many philosophers and theologians rely on the work of a sociologist and philosopher named David Emil Durkheim, whose work at the turn of the century was extensive about these two ideas. 
But Dr. Frey focuses on the sacred and profane aspects of love. There are lots of ways we can think about the sacred and the profane, of course. But what Dr. Frey does specifically for her podcast is she takes different works of art, primarily literature, and dives into how the sacred and the profane manifest in love. The podcast name, in fact, derives from a painting by Giovanni Baglioni, a contemporary of Caravaggio. And it was actually created in response to a painting by Caravaggio called Love Conquers All. There are a lot of fascinating layers about these two paintings, by the way. (laughs) And the background and the rivalry of these two painters, I wish I could go into it. I might post it on our Patreon page because I was just so fascinated by the story. But there was one aspect of the story, an unintended consequence of Baglioni's, which led Jennifer and many, many others in history to think more deeply about sacred and profane love. There was a kind of bitter resentment and jealousy that Baglioni had for Caravaggio. Caravaggio is manifestly superior in talent and fame than Baglioni. Um, And so there's this kind of irony and tension in Baglioni's painting, which is supposed to be about the triumph of sacred love. But at the same time, it sort of announces to the world, to the person contemplating the art, that its creator has been conquered by what? By profane ambition, right? So in attempting to accuse Caravaggio of being profane, you know, Baglioni kind of unwittingly implicates himself. And I'm interested in this because this is the kind of thing that I'm trying to explore in the podcast. So in each episode, we sort of try to explore how and what we love can conquer us in two different senses. So when our loves are well-ordered through virtue, our loves can help us to conquer ourselves so that we can be deeply happy. But when our loves are disordered, love can conquer us, right? By making us jealous, wrathful, selfish, lustful, or even overcome with despair. So it's really a podcast that tries to explore um, love when it's when it's sort of transcendent and higher and love when it's when it's more profane. And this painting and Dr. Frey's academic area of interest allow her to explore the relationship not just between the sacred and the profane, but even diving into the complexities of the sacred alone. The idea of the sacred really having two distinct but related senses. There's a sense of the sacred where it's something holy or kept apart, right? So if you are Catholic and you enter into a church, you should immediately be aware that it's a sacred space and your entire posture and orientation should reflect this awareness, right? So you're not not in the parking lot anymore. You're not in the mall, right? You're, you're now in a sacred and holy space. But there's also this sense of the sacred as that which you value more than anything else, that which is inviolate, right? That which in your thoughts and your actions and your feelings, you shouldn't ever go against. Um, and so I'm interested in these two senses of the sacred as it relates to love. So like trying to think about what we should love 
in the highest sort of way, what's the highest sort of love? And how can we take the profane dimensions of our life into something that's more sacred? Did you guys catch that? <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> the sacred isn't simply that which is set apart, like a sacred space, but it is also that which you value and love more than anything else. We sometimes hear this understanding in our common vernacular, right? No, no, you can't change the chicken recipe. It's sacred, right? <laughs> so how do we take the more profane dimensions of our lives and move them into something more sacred? In the best case scenario, as Dr. Frey says, the profane gets taken up into the sacred. So the question is, is that what happened at the Met Gala? Usually profanation has to do with denigrating holy symbols. This is Dr. Ann Carpenter again, by the way. You heard from her at the start of the episode, and you'll hear from her more in a bit. But I asked her what she thought about thinking of the Met Gala in this way. So like, like I tell my students, an upside down cross could either be a symbol of St. Peter or, or it could be a Satanist symbol. And, and the thing that's different is the context. One, the desire is to profane. The other, the desire is to remember a saint. Even though it's the same symbol, one's, one's profane, the other one is, is, is sacred. So using this idea, I began to look at the gala a bit differently. Instead of making some blanket statement about the event, maybe instead we can look to the symbols, or in this case, to the fashion. Because the bottom line is this, some of these outfits could very much be considered in the realm of the profane. And I'm not talking about the scantily dressed people, right? <laughs> I'm talking about people who took the symbols and likely intentionally moved something sacred into the profane. For example, there was a writer named Lena Waithe who wore this really beautiful rainbow robe that's meant to convoke images of something a cardinal might wear. Now, Lena herself is an LGBT woman, and her intention here was probably to jab at what she disagrees with in the Catholic teaching in regards to homosexuality. Regardless of how beautiful the outfit was and how beautifully it was constructed, its intention wasn't sacred. You could probably argue it was profane. And there are probably many other examples of this profanation, right? But can we really make the statement that that's all that there was? That that's what the entire night was about? Honestly, I don't think we can. And it helps us to understand this better, I think, if we dive into the night's theme, the Catholic imagination. When I first saw footage of the Met Gala just over a year ago now, I remember first feelings of confusion and then feelings of fascination <laughs> and then a question. What does it mean to have a Catholic imagination? If the fashion world was going to interpret this idea in dress, then I should probably explore what it means too. Rather than jumping into the endless cycles of debates and questions about validity, 
I wanted to do some theology. I wanted to dive into the heart of the Catholic imagination. And in my research, I finally found a theologian who was willing to do the same, (laughs) willing to discuss and even admire the 2018 Met Gala Dr. Ann Carpenter. I'm Dr. Ann Carpenter. I'm an associate professor in the Department of Theology and Religious Studies at St. Mary's College. Dr. Carpenter grew up in Illinois, spent most of her life in the Midwest in an Irish Catholic family, where she learned a couple of very important lessons. So the two things I learned about growing up where I did was that Notre Dame is great and And religion is really important. I had a lot of questions about religion, and so I kept asking about them, and my parents encouraged me to ask questions. And so that's kind of how I ended up in theology. I just didn't stop asking questions. And the Catholic tradition has this really sophisticated, really ancient and long-running way of asking questions. And so I I get to do that now. I get to be a part of that. Dr. Carpenter has her MA and PhD from Marquette in Systematic Theology. And one of her main areas of interest is theological aesthetics. This is an idea which really came to light with the writings of theologian Hanswald Barthasar that looks at the arts and theology and thinks about them together. Now, I found Dr. Carpenter through two articles of hers, which she wrote on the Catholic imagination. One was called The Extraordinary is Wed to the Mundane in the Catholic Imagination. And she followed it up with an article about the Met Gala called Met Gala Catholicism Broken but Shining. So I read her articles, and I have undergraduate and master's degrees in theology, by the way, (laughs) and I still didn't really get it. (laughs) Meaning, of course, the Catholic imagination seemed to be so many things. So along with you, listener, Dr. Carpenter is going to walk us through understanding the beautiful concept of the Catholic imagination. First up, of course, what is the imagination? So the the first confusing thing to think about is what is imagination? Before we talk about Catholic imagination, what is imagination? And for the majority of Catholic tradition, what imagination is, is it's this part of the mind that organizes all the sensible parts of our knowledge. So all the senses, all the sense data that the mind receives, the organizer for that is imagination. And intellect is what understands things from the material, from the sensible. And so imagination does this really important work of mediating between the sensible world, the bodily world, and truth. In other words, imagination doesn't deal with the truth directly. It is the mediator for the sensible or sensory world. That's why Augustine mainly, what we would call imagination, he mainly calls memory, because that's where we get all the sense data from. You don't make it up yourself. It has to be something you've experienced. That's what what you use to create images in your head. 
is the stuff you've already experienced. So any time I think about anything ever, I'm using my imagination. If I'm picturing a word, if I'm trying to think of my mom and how I love my mom, I have an image of my mom in my head, right? This sensible stuff is actually helping me to think. Imagination is caught up in everything that I do with my mind, which actually is a little different from how most of us might think about what the imagination is. Usually when we talk about imagination, we think of like, science fiction and like projecting into the future but i i want to bring it more down to everyday experience and how imagination is actually there carrying a heavy load for me as i try to think thoughts it's providing the kind of flesh and bones for the thoughts and so then of course we come to the central theological question for our discussion if the imagination is the mediator element between the sensible world and truth in our current everyday reality then what is exactly the catholic imagination that requires asking sort of what does a catholic look like which, which means it's also a way of asking, what does Jesus look like? If I met Jesus on the street, what would he look like? If he would look like a man, because he is, right? he's God and man. And so what a Catholic looks like is a human being, because that's like the, the flesh is the hinge of salvation, the church fathers would say. And so... Lots of times what Catholic imagination simply means is it's Catholics being human beings. And that's why Dr. Carpenter wants us to change the way we think about imagination. Instead of it being thinking about the future, we need to start understanding it as the ordinary act of living now. So for example, as Anne explained to me, when Mother Teresa exhibits the radical love of Christ for the poor, it looks like washing them to be clean. It humanizes them through a human act. But what makes that human act supernatural? What distinguishes the imagination from the Catholic imagination? And so what's supernatural about it is is sort of all on God's part. And what we're doing is fundamentally being human and then loving others with God's own love through our humanity. And so when we imagine things, when we think about the world, we're thinking about the, the, the actual world around us and making things out of it to try and highlight the way Christ is in the ordinary, the human, the everyday. So like in the Middle Ages, for example, you have these Gothic churches that are giant and beautiful. And the goal wasn't to make the cathedral set apart, like off to the side. The goal was to make the cathedral a kind of microcosm, a miniature world of the world, because God's saving the world, not an alternate universe. So there you, there you have Catholic imagination, even in the construction of its churches, working really hard to show that the world that God in, is interested in 
the people that God is interested in the actual world and the actual people that we meet. Which means for us as Catholics that God is moving in the created world, not just in some spiritual, invisible way, right? <laughs> but in the actual physicalness of our world. So in the, in the early Middle Ages, monks would, uh, like Benedictines, they would talk about the two books that God made for human beings. And the first book is creation. The second book is scripture. And the two actually talk to one another and they kind of mutually interpret one another. I love that idea so much, by the way. The idea of creation and the word of God speaking to one another, communicating the truth and beauty of the gospel and the movements of grace in our lives. This, as Dr. Carpenter has stated, is at the heart of the Catholic imagination. Which brings us, of course, to the Met Gala. I mean, my first thought was probably what a lot of people would think was, uh, oh, this is weird. And and that's, that's book, like, I was trying to think about the, think about it this morning and this afternoon. I was looking at photos to, to do my sort of review. And all the, all the symbols that they're using, even the color schemes that they use in the outfits, are in my sort of normal Catholic experience, those all usually appear in church and then not elsewhere. So I think part of the part of the disorientation was my brain was like, all right, the colors, the shininess, this all means church time. But clearly this is not church time. What's going on? Material things, fabric, the shapes of the fabric, all of those things are so physical, right? And in fact, many of the fashion designers were familiar with Catholic color themes and shapes because they were raised Catholic. If you go and look at the dresses, if you just think about the colors and the shapes, what you'll start seeing is not just vestments, right? But also the draperies which accompany the altar and the curtains of various cathedrals, the shapes of cassocks, recoloring them, exaggerating the lines. They know the fold of the fabric, right? They are simply reinventing the way they're used. And as Dr. Carpenter pointed out to me, there's something about this borrowing which makes it, in a sense, even more inherently Catholic. And the other thing, while I'm talking about it, the other thing that I love about that is that that's what Catholics originally did with all of those things. Already borrowed them. Nothing, nothing in the church space is original to us except the Eucharist, and that's original to God. And so it's sort of this reborrowing that happens, and that happens all the time. The, the modern world is in constant dialogue with the Catholic Church because we've had such a massive historical impact on, on the world. And so they're always, I mean, when people talk about human rights, they're borrowing Christian ideas to try and talk about that. They're sort of re-borrowing from us. And so here we get to see that in fashion, and it's, it's really fun. Now, a lot of my chat with Dr. Carpenter was about the night itself, of course. We talked about our favorite look 
books. We both agreed we loved Zendaya's interpretation of Joan of Arc. It's awesome, by the way. (laughs) We talked about the long tradition of Catholics making fun of themselves, reusing Catholic images to exaggerate things of the faith. And we talked about the weirdness of it all, right? And how it, in a sense, modeled how weird we Catholics can be sometimes. Catholics are also, we love symbols so much. We can have really corny symbols. Like if you if you look up online for like a Virgin Mary nightlight, you will find one. You will find one. And, and you have a kind of choice to try and see that as an expression of human beings wrestling with what it means to be faithful. Or you can see it as just sort of disrespectful because you want Catholicism to always have its best foot forward. But it doesn't because Catholicism is human beings. <laughs> and sometimes we can have an awful foot forward. We're very good at that. Um, but but other times it's just a human foot forward because we're very weird because humans are weird. But here is the thing. The most important takeaway, if you are going to take anything away from this episode, in all of these conversations about the gala amongst Catholics, in all of the debates about whether it was right or wrong, whether it was too profane or not, we are missing a huge part of this story. As I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, every year the gala is simply the kickoff to what some artsy nerds (laughs) might consider the more important main event, the exhibit. And in 2018, Heavenly Bodies exhibit displayed incredible fashions on loan from the Vatican from the past several centuries. Ancient, centuries-old cassocks, chasubles, religious garments, drapery, miters, you get it, the colors, the symbols, all of it on display in the Met and in other sister museums around New York City. In all of our attention on the gala, we are forgetting about the exhibit. And perhaps most importantly, the popularity of the exhibits. Listeners, get this. I I found this out actually in my research for this episode. The Met exhibit, Heavenly Bodies, this is true, was the most popular exhibit of all time in the history of the Met. It smashed a 40-year record previously held, by the way, by King Tut. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) The vestments from the Vatican and the heavenly bodies fashion designs are more popular than the mummified body of King Tut, (laughs) which is insane. (laughs) It was on display in the 60s, by the way. 1.7 million people visited the exhibit over several months, completely shattering the previous record held by King Tut. And the thing we're missing in all of this is the why. Instead of focusing on whether it was right or wrong, the church has an obligation to ask the why. So I think that human beings are, to kind of borrow from Flannery O'Connor, we're God-haunted. So we're really interested in sacred things. 
Um, my students mainly are not Catholic, but they don't really have a problem with religion. They might not like organized religion, but they don't, they're not convinced atheists with sort of huge sophisticated problems with, with the existence of God. And so seeing sacred designs in a modern and ancient context, seeing the creativity, because they were, they were side by side, the new work from artists and then like historical vestments that the Vatican loaned. So side by side, I think was really fun for people because it let them experience um, a little bit of the sacred in a kind of rearranged context and it's just really visually sumptuous visually sumptuous yes but as we've said all season beauty is a gateway and if i had to guess the visitors of this exhibit many of whom i'm also guessing weren't catholic were curious about the vestments and the why behind the beauty why does the church put such an emphasis on beauty? Why spend so much money on the beautiful, ornate pieces and symbols, right? And perhaps the biggest why. Why am I so drawn to it? Why does something stir in my heart that I am willing to pay a pretty pricey ticket price to see this Met exhibit? Here's Dr. Jennifer Frey again with her take. Human creatures are naturally drawn to beauty, and the Catholic imagination um, is, is has always been deeply ordered to beauty because Catholic theology sees being, truth, goodness, and beauty as just different aspects of being. You know, they're 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 like one reality. So to think about God as being itself is to think about the beautiful. To think about God is to think about the beautiful. And for a world that often isn't thinking about God, beauty can be a gateway, a way to draw us into the source of all beauty. And here's perhaps the most interesting thing for all of us. For many of us, and I'm sure many of the visitors who also grew up Catholic, so much of the beautiful of the past was stripped from our churches. The churches, the vestments, the music. Growing up in the 80s and 90s, I can tell you, and I'm sure many of you know this, everything felt sanitized, right? It was made modern. Beauty was seen as an unnecessary addition to the faith. What mattered more was our personal experience. But there are so many of us that feel as if we lost something. I feel it every time I step foot into an old beautiful church, right? Where was this as a young person? (laughs) A young person who longed to be swept off my feet, if you will, to be struck with wonder and awe at creation. And I don't think I'm the only one who feels this way. On the one hand, the church is obviously a counter-cultural institution, but in another sense, you know, the church can't be totally apart from the culture that, that it's trying to engage. And I think that the church too often gave into this kind of utilitarian thinking about buildings, about the liturgy, um, and they forgot about beauty. 
But the trouble is that theologically, to forget about beauty is to forget about God. Dr. Frey told me this story about some of her recent students in their study abroad program in Rome. And I think it gets at the heart of the lessons the church can and should take away from the remarkable popularity of the heavenly bodies, gala, and exhibit. Well, I think that the Catholic imagination and the Catholic sense of beauty are just inherently attractive. So I took 12 non-Catholic students to Rome and they were simply in awe. And what they were in awe of was, you know, a very Catholic vision that was represented to them in the architecture and the art that they were experiencing. And it was sort of striking how, because I made them do these daily journals and reflections. That was like a huge part of their grade. They just, they were grasping for language to describe how they felt walking into St. Peter's. They had never experienced anything like that. people visited the 2018 Met exhibit, Heavenly Bodies and the Catholic Imagination. And many more watched the gala arrivals, read articles about the exhibit and featured fashions, and discussed their favorite looks past and present. Almost 2 million people left with curiosity and wonder at how Catholics have, for the past centuries, allowed beauty to shape their existence, including in the world of fashion. 
If you've listened to my podcast before, you know I'm a big believer that when something is popular or gets a lot of attention, we as a church need to ask the why. For better or worse, we need to ask the why. And in this case, we need to think more about what we as Catholics can learn from the exhibit's incredible popularity. We as humans, but even more specifically as baptized practicing Catholics, we are longing for the truly beautiful. We want to be raptured by it, right? Moved by it. Beautiful art. Again, we want beautiful art in our sacred spaces. We want to fall in love with God through the truly beautiful. I'm going to close with one final thought from Dr. Ian Carpenter, one of our experts for today, on the way God tugs at our hearts through beauty. God bless you listeners. And we'll see you in two weeks. Hansard from Balthazar talks about how holiness cannot cease being holy because it's from God. That's what makes it holy. So, so even when you take pieces of the church, like out violently out of the church and scatter them on the street, there's still the fragrance of holiness leading you toward Christ. And so I think even when we see people pulling these things from out of the church, they still have the fragrance of Christ. Um, They're still sort of tugging at people. Thank you so, so much to our amazing guests for today. Please visit our website for information about our wonderful guests, including Dr. Carpenter's articles about the Catholic imagination, Dr. Frey's podcast, Sacred and Profane Love, and of course, the amazing book by Elizabeth Lev, How Catholic Art Saved the Faith. By the way, the music for today is the third song I've used off of the Origin Beauty CD. It is an amazing compilation of music put out by Focus Catholic. Please, please visit their website for information about this incredible, just amazing artistic achievement that was put out, I believe, three or four years ago. All right, gang, thank you so much. I'm so grateful to be with you, and we'll see you in a few weeks.